Welcome to A Reason for Hope. Happy Monday. My name is Adrian, and I'm in studio with our senior pastor, Scott Richards. Hey, everybody. Hope you're, you had a great weekend, and uh, thank you for tuning in. This is A Reason for Hope, a weekday Bible answer program where we take your questions from the live stream audience. We are a local church in Tucson, Arizona, where we are live streaming from, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And there are multiple ways you can join us in this uh, conversation because we we desire to just provide that hope and the hope that we have in Christ. And so if you have a question about your faith, about the faith, about uh, whether or not Christianity has good reasons for being true or believable, uh, whatever it may be, maybe it's just a simple question about how to interpret and apply a specific passage of the Bible to your life. So I encourage you to join us. You can do so multiple ways. You can first just email us directly, and that's at questionsforhope at gmail.com, questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also join us on our Facebook page. Just go to facebook.com forward slash CCF Tucson, or just look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and you'll find our page. Join the live stream. Use the chat box to, or I should say the comment uh, area to ask your question. And uh, <clears throat> if we don't get to your question today, because uh, that, that does happen here sometimes, we do have quite a few listeners, or I should say viewers now, because this used to be a radio show, so we have quite a few uh, viewers. Um, catch us the next day. We actually keep a log of every question so that if we don't get to one that day, we save it for the next day. So we will get to your questions. You can also do the same at YouTube. So just go to youtube.com forward slash at the ad symbol, a reason for hope with a four, just that it is on screen. But if you're listening on the radio and you want to join us on YouTube, again, it's at a reason for hope with the number four so you can join us there or you can just go to youtube and search for a reason for hope and you'll find us that way and if you see that little red icon with the white dub then you know you're in the right place uh, lastly you can join us on our website if you want to avoid social media platforms altogether and you'd prefer to uh, kind of <clears throat> stay maybe a little more anonymous as some people do uh, you can just go to our website go to calvarychristianfellowship.com hit that watch live tab it'll take you to our live stream where we live stream not only uh, this program every Monday through Friday from 5 to 6 Mountain Standard Time, uh, 5 to 6 p.m. that is. <clears throat> you can uh, use the chat box and ask questions. There's a little prayer button. We can make prayer requests. So to have, uh, we'd be happy to take those from you and, and answer your questions uh, for this program there as well. Um, also, if you're part of our community, I'd encourage you to check out our app. We have... A Bible app, not just a Bible app, it really is a community app. It's got our calendar, it's got our past messages, it's got a nifty digital Bible on it, it's got chat functions, kids check in, and so much more. So I encourage you to download that from the Apple or Google Play Store. Also, if you want to watch our program, uh, whether it be a service like our Wednesday evening Oasis service or a Sunday morning service, uh, you can add our channel to, AOR, uh, to your smart device. So if you have a Roku or an Amazon Fire uh, device, uh, search for us there. Again, just look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you see the red icon with the white dove, then you know that you have found us and you can add our channel to that. <clears throat> also encourage you to follow our senior pastor on the X platform, formerly Twitter, and his handle is at ScottR4H. That's at ScottR4H. With that said, we're going to take a moment to pray and get to a brief summary on current events as it pertains to the nation of Israel and just the phenomenal time we had over the weekend 
on the what we call the Understanding Israel Conference 2024. Uh, but uh, and then we'll get to your questions. Yeah, that'll be awesome. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that we have this opportunity to be able to uh, not only uh, explore your word, but uh, to welcome the presence of your Holy Spirit to speak it to our hearts, to uh, lead us to a deeper understanding of who you are and what it means to know you in a personal way, but even more importantly, to be able to understand and make sense of uh, what's going on in our lives and how your Holy Spirit is uh, moving and working and making us more like your Son day to day. I pray that as we explore questions, as we look at uh, the signs of the times, that you, Lord, would guide us into all truth. And at the end of this broadcast, we'd know you better, uh, be able to receive your love more deeply into our hearts and be able to relate your truth in a more solid and consistent way than we ever have before. Thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, uh, give us a little snapshot, I guess you could say, over the weekend. <laughs> of course, it's never a snapshot with all that's going on right now. But, well, uh, yeah, it's uh, there's uh, quite a bit going on, as a matter of fact. Um, as far as uh, the weekend is concerned, uh, boy, uh, we just really had a tremendous time. Uh, our uh, friend and tour guide, uh, Ronnie Simone, uh, joined us uh, for a, a couple of days, uh, and uh, as a result, uh, I think uh, we were all uh, in a place where uh, our relationship uh, with God was deepened. Uh, we did. We broke it up into two sections. Uh, the first night, uh, we began by talking about why we should stand with Israel. I gave a uh, Bible study on the book of Jeremiah, chapter 33, uh, which I think uh, deals with one of uh, the most troubling trends that I've seen in uh, evangelical circles, and that is to say, isn't God done with Israel? Hasn't the church replaced Israel? They rejected Jesus, so God rejected them. Well, you take a look at Jeremiah 33, and God could not uh, say in more uncertain terms uh, that he hasn't rejected Israel. Mm -hmm. The context of that passage is Jeremiah uh, being tossed into prison uh, by the powers that be who wanted to continue to hold on to power by any means necessary, wanted to continue their idolatrous practices, even those practices taking place at uh, the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem, uh, refusing to change, even though they were under siege by uh, the uh, armies of Babylon, uh, that destruction was imminent. And yet, even in that context, uh, this defiance uh, against God, even uh, under uh, his disciplining hand that was going on there, God said that there was still a plan for Israel, that Israel would be brought back to the land after being severely chastised in this set of circumstances, the 70-year exile in Babylon that Jeremiah predicted. Uh, he said that uh, if his covenant with day and night could be broken, uh, if that could happen, so would his covenant with the people of Israel, that uh, there would continue to be a nation of Israel, that God would fulfill his promise to King David to have a uh, descendant of his on the throne forever, and uh, that uh, the priests and the Levites would continue to serve him. Uh, and, and so uh, really no stronger way God could ever express to us the follies of what is called uh, supersessionism, uh, replacement theology, uh, the idea that uh, somehow Israel pushed uh, the envelope too far 
or even that God is not at work in the people of Israel even today. We've mentioned it many times, uh, not just the physical restoration of Israel prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 37, the famous Valley of the Dry Bones prophecy, but that uh, there would be a physical restoration of Israel and a pause and then a spiritual restoration of Israel. God would literally breathe his life into this uh, completely reassembled and restored but dead uh, entity. Uh, and and so this, this prophecy of Israel coming back to know the Lord, we're starting to see it. We've talked uh, many times about uh, Joel Rosenberg, our good friend, uh, and his uh, allisrael.com website, uh, publishing results uh, from LifeWay, uh, that there are well over one million uh, professing messianic believers who put their faith and their trust in Jesus as their Messiah in the world today. Out of a total Jewish population of 17 million, that's very, very significant. Hmm. And so we emphasize that. Uh, we asked uh, our good friend Ronnie Simone, the retired IDF colonel, uh, tour guide, par excellence, uh, historian, uh, to talk about events in the Middle East and what was happening there. And uh, Adrian, uh, then he uh, gave, took us through his, uh, his Israel Comes to You tour uh, on Saturday. But the most significant thing, I think, in the whole weekend, uh, the most powerful thing to me, was at the end of the conference, Ronnie played a video uh, that was put together by uh, over 100 different Israeli musicians, well, very well-known musicians, who gathered together and uh, produced a video, uh, video called Bring Them Home about the fate of the hostages. And uh, Ronnie and his wife, uh, Tali, who we got to know for the first time, wonderful, wonderful mm. woman. Uh, she and my wife, Pam, immediately bonded, and they were thick as thieves the whole time. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, the, showing this video and the whole idea of uh, these hostages, the thing that Ronnie shared with us is that Israel is a very small country uh, compared to the United States, obviously, uh, and that everybody in Israel knows at least someone who knows someone who is a family of one of these hostages hmm. or one of the hostages themselves. Oh. And uh, when he showed this video, here is this uh, tough as nails, retired uh, IDF colonel uh, who <laughs> has had some pretty amazing, amazing uh, adventures. He was a veteran of uh, the, the war with Lebanon that took place, uh, you know, seen combat and, and so on. Uh, and when this video played, uh, I saw him weeping up there. Wow. And uh, the thing that we don't understand here in the United States is we hear about a tragedy somewhere uh, on the East Coast or, you know, a school sh a shooting. And, you know, it impacts us, but not on the level, I think, that uh, we actually uh, sit down and weep for the people that are involved. And, uh, and seeing that uh, really gave me an insight into uh, one of the reasons that Israel has stuck together so long is that they really do see themselves as a family. Mm -hmm. uh, the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are, are brothers and sisters, not just fellow citizens of a country much like uh, the United States is, but that, that family sort of orientation was, was just mind-blowing. And uh, again, if uh, you missed that, 
our Understanding uh, Israel Conference. Ronnie is on a whirlwind tour. He left uh, us on Saturday night, got a few hours sleep, jumped on a plane to Louisville, Kentucky, where he has done a similar presentation. He is uh, finishing that up, and then he is going to speak uh, at a church in uh, Illinois and then fly back here to Tucson. And on uh, Friday and Saturday, he is going to be doing a similar presentation at Calvary Chapel of Tucson. So if you missed him when he was with us, I would highly recommend taking full advantage mm. of uh, going and seeing Ronnie at Calvary Tucson. And you can go to uh, the Calvary Tucson uh, website and get all the information uh, you need about all of that. I don't, I don't know if they are charging for that conference or not. They may be. Uh, but uh, you can get all of the information that you need on there, and I would highly recommend uh, you being a part of all of that. Uh, speaking of things uh, relating to uh, Israel, if you were with us uh, last uh, week, we talked about uh, how uh, we can no longer call this a limited war, uh, say, just between Israel and uh, the terrorists of Hamas. It has now become a regional war in that uh, Israel and uh, the terrorists in Hezbollah in Lebanon, as well as the uh, terrorist groups in Syria, are exchanging uh, regular uh, missile fire and uh, and attacks on one another. Uh, we cannot just call it a, a limited regional war in that uh, the Houthi rebels, as we have told you about, have uh, intercepted and interrupted uh, roughly 15% of all worldwide commerce uh, by attacking tanker ships traveling through the Gulf of Oman and into the Red Sea, uh, cutting off the Suez Canal and so on. Uh, the United States has gotten directly and deeply involved in all of this. Right before airtime, there were further strikes on the capital of Sana'a in Yemen, on the south uh, part of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. And uh, our president has announced that this is going to be an ongoing campaign against the Houthi rebels. In other words, we are involved in a war against the Houthi rebels in the Middle East. The United States is directly involved. We've also received, right before airtime, confirmed reports that uh, because of Russia's, uh, well, deal with the devil that they uh, conducted with Iran to uh, remove from them the threat of the uh, Chechen rebels who were doing such damage to Russia, threatening uh, Vladimir Putin with being thrown out by his own people. Uh, Russia is uh, committed to Iran and Iran's welfare. Uh, and now Russia is flying regular uh, fighter patrol uh, uh, in the area between the Golan Heights, uh, Lebanon, and Syria. Uh, and uh, the idea that uh, Israel, which regularly conducts raids across the border into Lebanon and Syria, could end up tangling with one of these uh, Russian uh, patrols. Uh, probably pretty good odds uh, of that happening sometime in the near future. So uh, what are we seeing here? We've seen Pakistan and Iran go at it, uh, firing ballistic missiles across each, each uh, other borders. Uh, we've seen uh, our president, uh, Joe Biden, announce uh, this operation against the Houthi rebels. Uh, interestingly, he was asked if the uh, missile strikes against the Houthis that we have conducted have uh, done any good. He said, no, they haven't, but we're going to continue them anyway, which is a very interesting wow. admission to make. 
so the United States, if you're keeping score at home, the United, the, these nations are involved now. The United States is involved. Israel is obviously involved. Uh, the terrorists in Gaza are obviously involved. The uh, Palestinian Authority and the terrorists who are part of the Fatah movement are involved. They have been uh, conducting, uh, you know, as we mentioned, uh, preparations for a war with Israel from the West Bank. Uh, Lebanon is now involved because uh, Hezbollah operates out of Lebanon. Syria is now involved because, uh, again, Syria is launching missiles and attacks uh, at Israel, and Israel is responding in kind. Uh, the United States and Iraq are involved uh, because uh, uh, Iranian-backed militias in Iraq have launched missile attacks at uh, United States bases in Syria and in Iraq, including uh, attacks that have resulted in numerous American casualties, mm. which our press is decidedly underplaying at this particular juncture. We go to the north, we see Pakistan's involved. We see Iran is obviously involved. Iran is the straw that stirs the drink. And uh, when Israel talked about uh, wars and rumors of wars uh, happening and conflicts in many places and all these things revolving around Israel is one of the signs, one of the birth pains that indicates that we could be in the general ballpark of the return of Jesus Christ. I would say we are in the midst of a birth pain that is becoming more and more intense and more and more frequent uh, as uh, time has gone on. So uh, we need to pray again for the peace of Jerusalem. There's been an announcement that uh, Israel has committed, has uh, communicated through uh, the country of Qatar uh, to uh, Hamas and to Iran that they would be willing to engage in a two-month ceasefire if uh, Hamas will release all of the Israeli hostages. And uh, again, uh, with, uh, with Ronnie and Tali here and being able to talk to them uh, about the incredible passion uh, that, uh, that Israel has. Uh, Israel at one point uh, uh, re released over 1,500 uh, convicted terrorists in order to uh, achieve the release of one hostage uh, a number of years ago. Uh, th this is just woven into their culture. You know, and again, it's like family. You do anything to save a member of your family. Well, you have over 130 of these hostages. Uh, there have been uh, reports released today showing the incredible uh, sophistication and uh, length of the terror network uh, now in uh, Kanyonis. Uh, which is considered to be the birthplace of Hamas. Uh, the, the proposal is that Israel will have a ceasefire for two months if uh, Hamas releases all of those hostages. Now, uh, will that in fact uh, cause uh, a, a ceasefire to happen here? Well, the, the fact of the matter is, um, even though today Hamas took another huge blow. They exposed a tunnel system known as the Pentagon of Hamas, including a large computer room in which intelligence material of uh, the terrorist organization uh, is, uh, is stored. Uh, 
Uh, our friend Amir Sarfati had a comment about whether Hamas is going to go along with this offer of a ceasefire. He said this, let me make it very clear. Hamas leaders will never release hostages unless they get an international guarantee that they stay in power and that all the Palestinian prisoners are released from Israeli prisons, including those who were convicted and arrested for their activities on October 7th. The last deal for hostage release was implemented only because Hamas was sure Israel would suspend the fighting in Gaza permanently. Only a strong military pressure can cause Hamas to release the the hostages. And uh, they know that uh, the reason for this is uh, because that is their only way of staying alive. Now, Hamas is, their, their whole goal on this is survival. If they can survive and continue to maintain some presence, some control over Gaza, then they have won this battle. And Israel would be utterly and totally defeated. Why? Because all of these sacrifices that they have made, all of uh, the lives that have been lost in this particular campaign would have been for nothing. And uh, Israel is not going to do that. Uh, Again, our good friend uh, Ronnie Simone talked about uh, how uh, there's going to be a reckoning as far as the Israeli government goes. After all of this, uh, he seemed to be doubtful that Benjamin Netanyahu is going to be able to survive uh, this uh, aftermath, this this, uh, reckoning that is going to take place. I would not bet against Benjamin Netanyahu's ability to survive politically. And the only way that Benjamin Netanyahu, I believe, is going to be able to survive politically, and he knows this, is if there is a complete and total and unmistakable and, and final victory over Hamas in Gaza. That's the only way that this is going to happen. The other thing you got to keep an eye out for is, uh, and uh, Ronnie was very open about this, is that uh, sooner, more sooner than later, uh, there is going to be an all-out Donnybrook with Hezbollah and Lebanon. And when that happens, Iran is probably going to be prompted to get more directly uh, involved with all of this. And Iran has already shown that they have no problem getting directly involved in this conflict. They have already hijacked a tanker ship in the same area with, with the Houthis and brought it to Iran. They have no problem with doing that. They had no problem mm-hmm. launching missiles at a nuclear power, Pakistan. Uh, in order to save face, these uh, individuals will probably more soon than later, if Israel and Hezbollah go go to war. Hezbollah is uh, Iran's pet project. 250,000 missiles they've supplied to them. All of the training of the Iranian Republican Guard Corps to create their version of, say, special forces in Hamas. They're not going to let this go without throwing everything but the kitchen sink at Israel. Prophetically, uh, and this is again speculation based upon Ezekiel 38 and 39, we know a couple things. We know that Russia and Iran are going to be part of a last day's invasion of Israel, a coalition of nations that is going to invade Israel and bring it to the brink of destruction that is only going to be staved off by direct divine intervention. God himself is going to defeat these armies. Mm -hmm. Israel is not. God, in fact, will. And Israel will know. In fact, all the nations around will know that God, in fact, has done that. Now, that tells me a couple of things. First, it tells me that there's going to be no uh, 
I guess, uh, rapprochement uh, happening between Israel and Russia. They're going to continue to be enemies as they've been uh, almost from the time Israel was uh, created as a nation. Secondly, Iran is not going to change its tune about Israel. They are going to be committed to Israel's destruction. However, they may be so gutted by a limited interaction with, with Israel that uh, they will be uh, more or less a uh, sidekick uh, to Russia having to go in there. But also, I believe one of the dominating main reasons that Russia is going to go into this area, along with the discovery of massive natural gas tracks mm -hmm. off of Israel, which is going to change the whole equation as far as energy supply uh, in this world. Uh, those are going to be the reasons that that is going to happen. So Russia is going to have to be around. They're going to have to continue to be an enemy of Israel. Iran is going to have to be around and continue to be an enemy of Israel. Uh, the United States, not mentioned. We don't know if we're around or not. Uh, I hope it's because the rapture happens and uh, we are just absolutely decimated as a nation. But it is entirely possible that we just lose our footing as a superpower. We are seen as a paper tiger if you will. Oh, and I, I forgot another nation uh, that is involved in all this, China. Mm -hmm. China was the one who tried to get uh, Iran and Pakistan to kiss and make up. And so China is involved with this conflict. Uh, I don't know if you're keeping score at home, but if you've got over 10 major nations involved in a war going on somewhere on the globe, it's starting to sound an awful lot like a world war mm -hmm. is starting to happen. Now, it's somewhat contained in that region, but uh, things could change in a big-time hurry. So, yeah, and when Jesus said wars and rumors of wars, <clears throat> well, Israel being in a conflict with multiple nations is still just one war. That means Jesus is implying that there are conflicts everywhere, lots of conflicts, not just conflicts with Israel, but you, know, yeah. you have the Ukraine-Russia issue, if China decides to attack Taiwan— it's and, and again, again, <laughs> Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. These are the beginning of sorrows. Even that idea of nation rising against nation, um, you know, we could fit uh, China's ambitions about Taiwan mm -hmm. very neatly into all of that. Uh, we could uh, talk about how the conflict in Ukraine could very easily spill over into a conflict with NATO nations. We could also mention that Turkey, although not directly involved in any of these conflicts at this point, is uh, spoiling for war with Israel. Mm. Uh, their prime minister has no love for Israel whatsoever. And so, so, you know, again, uh, I, I think we may see some kind of a, a limited conflict that historians maybe 100 years from now are going to look back and say, you know what, that was a world war. Mm. Wow. Now, this is a softball question, but I think it's worth asking because I'm sure that there I are love a lot softball of, questions. <laughs> there are a lot of folks out there who might be thinking, well, wait a minute, wars and world nations again. This has been going on since the dawn of time. We've even had two world wars. What makes the early part of the 20th century any different than now? What is what is the the big stick that stirs the drink that's missing. Yeah, in that well, <laughs> well, again, softball, it, but it, uh, Israel, what's the difference? Israel back in the land. I mean, you know, I, I think there was a study that was done uh, by uh, a uh, journal, a, a military journal that estimated 
that uh, since the year uh, 2000 BC, there have been uh, 300 years of peace in the world. I don't know how they measured yeah. that, yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, hmm. peace has been defined as the time it takes the nations to reload, and, and I understand that. But never uh, since, uh, at least until 1948, has Israel right. not only been on the scene, but been the focal point of nations from virtually every corner of the world going to war. Hmm. That wasn't true in World War One so or World War Two, but it is true now. So that's the key indication that I wanted to point out is that, yes, there have been conflicts and, and things that after Jesus spoke them in the first century, um, before that you could say, yeah, there was multiple conflicts, but Israel ceased to be a nation in by 70 AD approximately, as far as having the temple and being a complete, I mean, even then they were ne not necessarily an independent state, they were being ruled by the Romans, but since that time, there, there has not been a nation-state called Israel. Right. I mean, the land was called Israel, it's the land of Israel, but as far as them being back in the land... Well, even uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, Roman emperor, because he hated Israel so much, changed the name of the land of Palestine, mm -hmm. because it was yeah, a right. riff on the Philistines, one of Israel's most hated enemies, it was his way of saying, you know, I'm going to utterly and totally disrespect you. Mm -hmm. And this all happened uh, in conjunction with what was called the Bar Kochva, Rebellion, this fellow uh, Simon Bar Kochva, mm. which literally meant the son of a star, thought he was the fulfillment of Balaam's prophecy in Numbers chapter 22, the Messiah, that uh, the star that would rise from Judah. Uh, he thought he would lead the forces of Israel to defeat the Roman Empire. Uh, suffice it to say, he was wrong. Mm. Uh, but after that, the actual diaspora took place. Uh, the Romans came in and scattered the Jews to the, the, the four winds uh, in order to make sure that didn't happen again, and even renamed the territory. Hmm. So, Wow, that's why this is so significant. That's why we do uh, daily prophecy updates, because there has never been a time in history where the Messiah had come, spoke those words, and the nation of Israel is an actual nation state where you begin to see these global conflicts occurring. We live in a unique time in human history. You know, and uh, just another update here. Uh, the United States has officially named uh, their operation against uh, Houthi assets in Yemen Operation Poseidon Archer, which indicates that this is going to be going on for quite some time. Now, I don't know if you covered this on Friday or Thursday last week, but I saw a report that one of the missiles that, that Iran fired was way more sophisticated, and the State Department admitted saying, we didn't know that they even, even Iran had these capabilities. This, the level of sophistication in the rockets that they saw being fired were beyond what we thought they were capable of, and now we have to reassess any conflict with Iran, period, just in light of that. Yeah, and, uh, that and, and, and the, uh, the, the door swings both ways on that. Uh, Yoav Gallant, uh, the head of the IDF, has made statements uh, saying if uh, Hezbollah... Uh, wants to go at it, uh, they will uh, come up against weapons and capabilities they have never dreamt of. I don't think people realize that we've kind of been living in a Cold War. I mean, yeah. and essentially, this, is, this has been a Middle Eastern Cold War, people trying to develop weapons, China, all because of this one conflict. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, uh, I, it would not surprise me that uh, Iran's capabilities 
are uh, ones that will be uh, amazing to our intelligence services. After all, our intelligence services, you have, uh, and we talked about this on Friday with Ronnie, you have the CIA, you have MI6, you have the Mossad, and all of them were caught flat-footed uh, when Hamas attacked Israel. None of them saw it coming. So, uh, sophisticated, yes, um, uh, effective, probably in ways we can't even imagine, but uh, infallible, blind spots, yeah, uh, we really don't know uh, what kind of capabilities Iran has. Uh, I do believe that if they had a nuclear capability, they would demonstrate it, uh, mm -hmm. just for the prestige, just for the psychological warfare aspect of things. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ronnie uh, on, uh, on Friday pointed out something that uh, had not occurred to me. Uh, even if Iran does go nuclear, even if Iran does have a uh, ballistic missile with the capability of being able to, say, hit New York City with it, uh, yeah. let alone Israel, which they do, by the way. <clears throat> They've launched satellites, and if you can launch a satellite into orbit, you can also launch an ICBM, mm. an intercontinental ballistic missile, into orbit. But uh, what Ronnie pointed out, and I thought was very interesting, is this. Say Iran decides to go nuclear and send a nuke at Haifa to take it out. I doubt if they would want to take out Jerusalem because it's considered a holy site in Islam. But say they're going after Haifa, which is, uh, you know, again, the main port of Israel and would be an incredible economic blow. Well, Israel has a number of anti-missile systems that we know about that are very, very sophisticated and able to take out ballistic missiles. We've seen that with the Houthis attempting to uh, shoot ballistic missiles some thousand miles away uh, from Yemen to hit a lot in southern Israel. But uh, what Ronnie pointed out was this is, uh, you know, say they launch that and then their attempt to nuke Haifa is taken out what do you suppose the response of Israel is going to be? And understand something, Iran does not have the anti-ballistic missile systems that Israel does. Mm. It would be suicidal. Tehran would be nuked. They'd be, yeah, they yeah. cease to exist with yeah. And, glass. and uh, so uh, I think as long as that is the case, and uh, if, you know, again, Russia does have uh, anti-missile systems uh, that uh, they could bring in to try to create a balance of terror there, obviously. But uh, until that happens, Iran, you know, the, the leadership in Iran uh, is so cynical uh, that, uh, you know, they talk about the, uh, the glory of being a martyr, but it's always more glorious for someone else to be a martyr than their leadership. Mm. You, you never see the Ayatollah leading the charge if you will, against the infidel. He sends other people out to do that. In fact, Iran and their whole strategy has been to send out uh, these uh, militias, uh, Arab-populated uh, militias, not Persian uh, uh, militias, maybe Lebanese uh, militias, but certainly not Persian militias. They'd have their, you know, obviously the Iranian Republican Guard Corps uh, uh, personnel there, who, by the way, are increasingly being taken out in targeted attacks by Israel, which I think is a very wise strategy. Uh, but, but you have that going on, and, and uh, you see that Iran uh, doesn't want to get its own nose bloodied in all of this, if it can possibly avoid it. Hmm. Have somebody else 
do the heavy lifting. Uh, well, that's so. one of my biggest concerns is that it, the reason why the United States or something like it is not mentioned in biblical prophecy is because we don't exist. Because <laughs> <laughs> we got nuked out of existence or en- enough to be, like you said, just a, a, a non-player. And yeah. all would it take is a dirty bomb in New York City or something worse. Well, or, and I try to keep the glass half full here, the rapture of the church. Mm. Say 50 million Americans vanish overnight. What do you suppose is going to happen to this country? As opposed to the Muslim-dominated countries, uh, the European countries that you know have a fairly meager amount of Bible-believing Christians in their population. Uh, I think the United States... You know, again, apart from, say, nations in sub-Saharan Africa and South America, where there's tremendous uh, moves of God taking place, mm-hmm. uh, we'd probably be hit as hard or harder than anyone. Yeah, I and, like the point you made about how economically the 9-11 attacks, what it did to our economy, our infrastructure, our sort of way of life, it really, I mean, it was a huge event, but nothing compared to 50 million people vanishing Yes, yeah. It, it'd be catastrophic. Well, uh, just under 3,000 died on 9-11 and took three years to recover. Hmm. Try to imagine, I don't know, 10 times that amount? Hmm. Well, at least uh, they have one thing going for them. They've increased our population by about 5 million just in the last few years. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. So, well, uh, Mary Jane wanted to know last week and uh, on Thursday— uh, Many of our ladies at CCF are reading chronologically through the Bible. We are currently in the book of Job. How long did all these events, deaths, illnesses, etc., last for Job? Weeks, months, years? So is there any way to, to decipher a, a timeline of how long it took for all these different events to take place in Job's life? You know, uh, as far as being able to pinpoint it, uh, in with any precision, uh, we would probably be out Bibling the Bible if we did. Uh, Job does speak of historical events. These things actually happened to Job. But the vast majority of the book of Job is a genre called wisdom literature. It is the recording of uh, the, uh, the debates that went back and forth between Job and his friends trying to figure out why in the world uh, these awful things happen to Job. It does seem that they are rapidly successive events. It wasn't just that, you know, over 20 years, you know, again, Job, uh, you know, lost his family and, uh, you know, lost his possessions and, and uh, then lost his health and so on. Uh, in fact, uh, it just does seem that it's uh, kind of like how trials and tribulations work in our lives as believers. I've always felt uh, that it would be a lot easier on me if there was an air traffic controller for my trials, you know, that one could come in for a landing and I would deal with that. And uh, then we would uh, put it away in the hangar. Then the next one could come in. But if your experience with trials is anything like my experience with trials, uh, it seems like all the planes are trying to land on the same runway at once. (laughs) So I think you see that in Job, but there aren't any uh, time stamps. If you'll, you want to use that expression so that we would be precise saying, well, it was, you know, six weeks between the time you know, that uh, the, uh, the fire from, he- from uh, heaven consumed uh, Job's uh, children, uh, the, the raids of the Midianites, and so on. Uh, the fact that these, 
these uh, devastations did take time uh, indicates that they all just didn't fall on Job, you know, on one day. I mean, there was an expanse of time there. We do know that. Uh, how long did it take for the boils to break out and cover Job's body? Um, we don't know. How long did he try to use natural remedies to resolve this before he was told it was hopeless and all he could do was sit in the ash heap and scrape the uh, boils with pieces of pottery? We don't know. Does Job uh, appear in any of the genealogies as far as his age? Do we have, know how old he was? No, we really don't. And do uh, we have a... Uh, is there any good reasons to pin a approximate date of the writing of Job? Or? Yeah, uh, the we can uh, uh, have a pretty good idea of the general time frame uh, of the book of Job. It was pretty much around the time of Abraham. We know that because of the mention of the various... Uh, customs and procedures and uh, and even the uh, the uh, place names uh, that are associated with Job's friends, the way they're described, it all goes back to uh, roughly the, the time of Abraham or about 2000 BC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so we can have a pretty good idea on that. Uh, one of the things people uh, are always surprised to hear, is uh, they assume that Genesis is the oldest book in the Bible because this is in the beginning. Uh, but Genesis was written probably about 1,600 years after the time of Job. Uh, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Hmm. So, uh, you know, that that's generally speaking the time frame that we're dealing with there. Hmm. Nice. Thank you for that question, Mary Jane. We're hope you, we hope you tuned in today and got a chance to check that out. Uh, Wayne wants to know, what are your thoughts on small group Bible study Uh, within the context of a local church? Well, I think it's a thoroughly biblical idea. And if you want the original scripture uh, that goes back and uh, describes uh, this this model, we go to Acts chapter 2 and uh, verse 42. After the 3,000 men, not counting women and children, saved at Pentecost and baptized, it says they uh, were continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and handed them out uh, among all as any had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved." Uh, now, notice it says that they, uh, they were gathering together in one accord in the temple. In, in other words, they continued to go to, say, the southern steps of the temple to hear teaching, because that's where teaching would take place. Uh, they continued to uh, observe the times of prayer that were associated in the temple, Peter and John going to the temple at the time of the evening prayer and so on. Uh, and, and so the temple was a part of all of that, but it does appear as well that the early church met from house to house. In fact, there are greetings in the letters of the Apostle Paul to different churches who met at different people's homes. Now, uh, again, that has kind of a twofold meaning because the culture then and the way things worked were a bit different than the way things operate in our day and age. Uh, we tend to think of a church as an independent building, uh, and then churches might have small groups meeting in homes 
that's sort of an adjunct or an attachment to that main church. But uh, you need to understand that it didn't take very long after uh, the, uh, the message of Christianity began to spread that opposition and persecution began to rise. The idea of not being able to go to the temple, being arrested for preaching the gospel in the temple would happen. People had to move out. Uh, you know, one of the, uh, the traditional places where people would meet was the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. And, and so you would see that rather than meeting in the temple, they began to meet in people's homes along that line. So the idea of small group Bible studies, uh, I think, is very, very well established very early on in the history of the church. There were, uh, I, I would say, corporate mass gatherings that would take place. And then there were these other uh, meetings that would take place house to house, if you will, following that model of meeting at the temple. Everybody knew you met at the temple. That's where you would meet. That's where everybody would be together. And then house to house, you would have these separate studies, these separate fellowships uh, going on. So uh, the, the pluses and minuses of all that, uh, I think uh, having a small group Bible study is a great way uh, to be able to minister spiritual gifts to one another. Uh, you know, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, you know, Paul describes how when you gather together, some would have a word of knowledge, some would have a prophecy, uh, others would lead out in a tongue, let all things be done decently and in order. But then it describes how if someone leads out in a word of prophecy, uh, they should speak and the others would sit and judge that word of prophecy. And then uh, we are told if one person was speaking and then another person was led by the Spirit to speak, that first person should stop and then allow the other person to be able to speak. Well, you know, again, that would create a free-for-all in a large group gathering. <clears throat> it seems very, very implicit that you're talking about a very small group gathering where, say, someone would lead out, uh, say, in an utterance in tongues, and then someone else would offer the interpretation of, the, of uh, the, the speaking in tongues that would go on there. Very difficult to do that in a gathering of, say, mm. 3,000 people mm. under one roof, but very uh, easy to do that in a smaller home fellowship format. And so it does appear that, uh, you know, some churches will have like afterglows or, or uh, you know, special worship uh, sessions in order to facilitate the practice of spiritual gifts. But it does appear that uh, that would be one of the big advantages of having a small group Bible study. You'd be able to wait on the Lord and uh, be able to practice those different gifts mm. in that kind of a setting with that kind of instantaneous feedback. Uh, the other thing that is just a real advantage over having a smaller group gathering rather than just a kind of a large cattle call, kind of the way we tend to do it, uh, is that you get the opportunity to really be involved in the lives of other mm. people. Uh, you know, again, we are to build each other up with our spiritual gifts. We are to be knit together in the bond of love. We are to uh, not forsake the assembly of ourselves together as is the habit of some, uh, but all the more you see the day approaching so that we can stimulate one another to love and good works. Well, you know, it's hard to stimulate someone to love and good works if your church experience is everybody gathering in one big building, church is over, got to clear out before the next uh, group comes in. Very difficult to do that sort of things. Mm -hmm. But home fellowships supplementing that large group gathering where the Word of God is taught, even focusing in on what was taught in uh, the small group in Calvary Chapel circles very early on what would happen is these small groups uh, would get going in uh, 
it started out in these uh, kind of uh, uh, group homes, uh, these uh, sort of mini communes that, that got going uh, in, in harmony with the hippie movement. Uh, but uh, as small group uh, Bible studies got established, sometimes you would have a person who would be spiritually gifted who could lead that study. But then other times they would just sit down and they would listen again to uh, Pastor Chuck's sermon that he had done and they would discuss it. They would be able to ask questions. They'd be able to interact and uh, look at other scriptures that related to the same subject. So yeah, I, I would think uh, that having a both and, a large group gathering where we receive the word of God corporately, we see that modeled in the early church, but also we see the opportunity, even in Acts chapter 13, uh, where even the leadership of the church in Antioch were uh, fasting and praying and ministering to the Lord and exercising their spiritual gifts with one another. So uh, definitely a both and, I don't think uh, necessarily an either or. There are some movements that I've looked into because I, as a as an itinerant missionary, I work with so many different denominations, uh, dozens and dozens of different denominations that I've partnered with over the years. And strange movements, at least to me, because they're always, you know, I'm overseas, I'm in non-Western places, so there are non-Western ways of doing things. And there are movements who, the idea of the corporate Western church, the idea we meet in a public building and things like that, is often frowned upon in those circles, thinking that, well, that's not how the early church did it. And so my my perception is, is that all too often, it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, <clears throat> people look at what the early church did, and, and instead of looking at it as a description, they try to look at it as a prescription. Right. Rather than saying, well, times change, Extract, extrapolate the principles that the Bible's teaching about the gathering, and, and you adapt with the change of society. We're not in a place and time where you're being persecuted and you have to hide in your house. So yeah. how else can you, yeah, yeah. How else could <laughs> you worship? That could change in a New York minute. So, yeah. Yeah. so what, what, how would you uh, approach that subject when people tend to take how the early church did things, even the early church fathers, and then you know, sort of ran on everybody else's parade because they do it a little bit differently? Well, I get off the boat on the early church fathers. Uh, you know, it, it appears to me this is my take, reading the New Testament, that even in New Testament times, it didn't take very long for people to get wild hairs and mess things up. And, you know, again, uh, cultic groups like Gnostics and people promoting, uh, you know, again, the return to the temple, uh, temple uh, law and so on. Uh, you know, all these things began to infiltrate in the early church really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. So someone saying, well, but these early church fathers were closer to the time of the apostles than we are now. Well, that's true, but you don't really need a whole lot of time to really get off track in a big time early. Just because someone wrote at an early date doesn't necessarily mean that it carries more heft than the New Testament. And, and, uh, and so, you know, there's always a debate about the book of Acts. Is it descriptive? Uh, is it just a historical document? Uh, that just says this is how God moved at this particular place and, and time, or is it proscriptive? Is is it uh, giving us a pattern that we should attempt to emulate? Well, I'd say the answer to that question is yes. Mm -hmm. It's both, uh, because uh, the book of Acts does give us uh, our historical foundation. We understand how the Holy Spirit moved during that time. But understand something, uh, you know, the, the uh, book of Acts, and this will color the whole way you answer this question, 
if you look at the book of Acts as the Acts of the Apostles, right? Um, the book of Acts never describes itself as the Acts of the Apostles. How does it describe itself? Uh, well, uh, Luke said this, the former account I made out Theophilus of all Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up uh, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, whom he presented himself alive after, after suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them 40 days and speaking to the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Notice uh, the book of Acts, really the acts of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. It's not the acts of the apostles. The apostles were obviously used as channels of the Holy Spirit, but it's almost as if the gospels are over, Jesus ascends into heaven, and now the Holy Spirit takes mm. center stage in terms of the ministry through the body of Christ that we see in the church. So historically, can we see how the gospel began to spread? Yeah, we certainly can. Is it exhaustive? No. We leave Paul basically under house arrest, uh, waiting his trial, but that's where it ends. Um, but we can find out an awful lot about how, how God's people interacted with each other, uh, who they interacted with. Uh, we can have great confidence that uh, even the miraculous things that we see in the book of Acts are true because the non-miraculous things in the book of Acts are true. The people, places, things, customs, modes of transportation, and so forth. We can verify our message mm -hmm. through that, which is, which is awesome and wonderful. But we need to ask ourselves another question. Why do we have this example, if you will, uh, following the gospel accounts? Well, if we are to say it's not a how-to, uh, I think we're missing an awful lot. It should be, uh, like you say, principles. We don't have to say, well, we're never going to gather together in a uh, building with air conditioning because we don't see that in the book of Acts. You know, you can take that to seed, if you will. Yeah. But on the other side of the coin, uh, we should always be asking ourselves a question. Why do we do what we do? Mm -hmm. Do we do it because we always done it? Do we do it because culture expects this out of the church? Or do we do it because we see chapter and verse why we do what we do in the word of God? Uh, one of the things that has really been helpful to me and a real safeguard to me as a pastor is really sitting down and thinking through biblically everything that we've done. I mean, we started with a handful of people in a mm -hmm. hotel conference room uh, with this church, and it, it has gone on from there. Every once in a while, someone will come up to me and they'll say, well, uh, you know, we just don't do that here in our church. And I go, we, is there a mouse in your pocket? <laughs> you know, I mean, what do you mean we? Um, you know, I think I've been here since the beginning. Uh, and, you know, just saying we've always done it this way is not a sufficiently biblical answer. So when someone asks me, okay, uh, why don't you guys take an offering, a formal offering in your services here? Well, we did for a time, uh, you know, and, and we, you know, again, once COVID hit, it was kind of impossible to do that. We've kind of gotten away from it because, you know, again, we want to answer the question. Is there anything wrong with collecting an offering? You can show chapter and verse where they did, but it seems to be the exception more than the rule. Uh, were God's people encouraged to give on a regular basis? Yes. Should we facilitate that? Yes. But should we also facilitate the fact that giving should be something that is done just between that person and God? 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's easier for me as a pastor to be able to look at somebody and say, well, you know, why don't you guys, you know, pass a plate here? Well, this is why. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. Let's talk about what Jesus said about giving. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, where each one should give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, by passing a plate, are we setting people up for feeling like they're compelled to give? Well, you know, again, these are the reasons that we do what we do. And, and the list could go on and on forever. Uh, you know, why do you have a separate youth ministry? Why do you have a children's ministry? These are questions that we should always be asking ourselves. And if we can see descriptively in the book of Acts some answers to those questions or in the, the epistles, the instructions, especially the pastoral epistles, then by all means, we should be able to do it. Uh, does that mean that uh, because there's no mention of air conditioning, we shouldn't have air conditioning? Uh, no, I mean, there's some things that I think God leaves to common sense. But, but we should always be able to have, as far as the biggies go, a scriptural reason for doing what we do. And it seems that it's pretty self-evident, especially when you interpret the book of Acts in light of the church letters, the church epistles, where Paul is prescribing how to behave, how to live. And he says, as I have set as the foundation for all the churches, it seems pretty evident that you can discern those circumstantial right. descriptive moments versus the principal prescriptive ones in the book of Acts. Yeah, you know, and a great example of this, and we're kind of running out of time, is the whole idea of wearing head coverings hmm. in church. You know, is that prescriptive or descriptive? Hmm. Well, when we understand the context of when that was written and how people in Corinth would uh, perceive, say, a woman, you know, with her head shaved and so on, uh, you know, again, it was a sign of being a prostitute. Mm-hmm. And there were people being saved out of the cult of, of uh, Aphrodite who were prostitutes. And so when we begin to understand that, we are able to carefully discern why we do what we do and why we don't do the mm-hmm. things we do. But we should always have a biblical answer to these things. Well, great. Thank you, Pastor Scott. And we'll see you tomorrow. God, God bless, bless you. you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.